The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Quiet Man of Narragansett, Episode 1. Spring, 1919. For the rest of her life, Elizabeth Crown would remember this morning, May 26, 1919, the day she returned to America. She stood on the foredeck, breathless at the long ribbon of land. Waves slapped against the bow, and the cargo ship followed gray jetties toward the shore. On one side, the coastline was topped with a row of cottages. On the other, a cluster of docks stood in wait, the air above crowded with seagulls. Elizabeth descended the gangplank, crossed the pier, and dug her shoe into sand-flecked grass. She set her carpet bags on a patch of gravel and adjusted her gloves. Beyond the masts of ships, above the ruddy rooftops of fishermen's shacks, a nebulous sun was rising through the overcast. The air was cool and damp. Lonely dirt roads extended across the marshy flats. Men in peacoats ambled past, puffing hand-rolled cigarettes. Pardon me, Elizabeth asked a passing longshoreman. The man had a lobster trap balanced on his shoulder, and he blinked, surprised to be addressed. Are we in Galilee? Sure we are, said the man. Where you headed, miss? For a split second, Elizabeth was about to say home, but she couldn't form the word. She might have said Pittsburgh, but that didn't feel right either. She could have asked for the nearest train station, or at least a telegraph office, so she could announce her arrival. Instead, she said, A beach. Where is the nearest beach? The longshoreman smirked. Well, the nearest nice beach is down the road a pace, he said, pointing inland. Narragansett. Hotels, casino, nice spot for sun, if the weather ever breaks. Perfect, said Elizabeth. If you need a lift, said the man, my cousin's driving a delivery into town in about an hour. Well, that's mighty kind of you. Sure thing. Donnie's a chatterbox, so you'll have to deal with that, but he's a nice enough feller, and he'll get you to where you're going. And now that I think of it, the man scratched his scruff with a free hand, scanning the tiny village. How do you like chowder? Love it, said Elizabeth, who had never tasted chowder in her life. Swell. Best cup you can find is over there. See that shack with the tile roof? Tell him Nicky sent you. I'll send Donnie around to pick you up there. Elizabeth hefted her bags. That'll do the trick, Nicky. Thank you. Say, is everyone around here this friendly? The man doffed his cap. Welcome to Rhode Island, miss. And so Elizabeth found herself on Narragansett Town Beach, lying on a newly purchased towel, watching the crash of waves. Froth burbled across the sand, and half-naked children dared each other to wade into the breakers. The weather had eased up, 
and a thin sheet of clouds glowed with solar energy. Narragansett Beach was a mile-long crescent. Couples and families dotted the landscape, though few ventured into the clamorous ocean. A formidable pier stretched far into the water, and vacationers leaned against its handrail to gaze at the horizon. America, she thought. I'm back in America. Where did the time go? Every interaction felt strange. Checking into the hotel, buying a bathing suit, hearing strangers speak her own language so casually. She marveled at the sight of an ice cream cart. Every car gleamed as if fresh off the factory line. People moved about with spring-loaded vivacity. Behind her, the buildings bore candy-colored awnings and bright white facades. Hawkers wandered the edge of the beach, selling balloons and sweets. How sublime it all seemed after so many years away. From where she sat, Elizabeth couldn't help but notice the only other beachgoer sitting alone. It was a man, a tall man, she could tell. One long leg was crossed over the other, and his pants were rolled up his shin. He wore a cotton shirt and vest, and he sat with alert posture. A wicker basket lay next to his tartan blanket. He wore a thick black beard, though some parts were unevenly trimmed. Elizabeth didn't know how long she watched him, but all at once, a gust of wind tore across the scene. Sunbathers grabbed their hats, handkerchiefs and bits of paper were flung into the air, and the man, sitting alone, was taken off guard. The wind struck him in the face, and his dark hair retreated across his head. The wig lifted away like sagebrush, exposing the naked head beneath. For an instant, the man's scalp was visible, gray, leathery, and from ear to ear, then forehead to nape, the cranium was crossed with ropey scars. The cuts were long and severe, bruises still discolored the surrounding flesh. The man leapt to his feet, scrambling after the wig. He stuck it back to his head, but by then, it was too late. Mama, what's wrong with that man? cried a young boy. Shush, Elliot, said a bosomy woman, grabbing her son's pointed finger. But Mama, why is he so ugly? That's enough now. But Mama... Elizabeth barely noticed when the mother smacked her child across the cheek. She barely heard the explosion of wails. The two figures tromped away into oblivion. But Elizabeth couldn't take her eyes off the man. She watched him gather his belongings into a single armload and jog away. Every movement was small and servile. As he scampered toward the road, his hips and shoulders swayed unnaturally. He looked down, the wig misshapen over his ears. Poor thing, murmured Elizabeth, who assumed she would never see that man again.
much less within the hour. Elizabeth sauntered down the corridor, beach towel thrown over her shoulder, shoes swinging at her side. She enjoyed the scraggly feel of carpet on her bare feet. Then she stopped. The man was standing there, turned toward a door. He rummaged around in his pants pockets, then patted his vest and shirt. He shook his head, whispering curses to himself. It took Elizabeth only a second to realize that the man's room was directly across the hall from her own. Back pocket, Elizabeth offered. The man jolted. Frightened eyes looked back at her. His foot stepped back, striking the picnic basket he'd set on the floor. But then he caught his breath, reached back, and drew a skeleton key into the light. Good gracious, he breathed. Thank you. That's where my father usually finds it, chuckled Elizabeth, unlocking her own door. But not before he turns the house inside out. The man smiled shyly. I'm not used to, he thought for a moment. Keys. Well, practice makes perfect, unless you're my father. With that, the door clicked shut. As usual, Elizabeth spent some time exploring her new digs. Her bags were already open, and somehow her clothes had drifted to every corner of the room. She stepped into the shower and scrubbed the nautical travels from her body. Black grit swirled down the drain, along with accumulated lint and stray hairs. Washing wasn't a frequent luxury on cargo ships, especially when all her shipmates were lusty drifters. She'd kept to her cabin for days at a time, rereading every book she had, and when all else failed, turning to her own journals. Now there was a plush mattress and fresh linens, a secretary desk and colored lamps, a colorful rug on polished floorboards, no sounds but the traffic outside. This solitude in a sweet-smelling room that stayed forever horizontal was all she could have hoped for. There was a knock at the door. Elizabeth was clothed and primped. At that moment, she was fastening a wristwatch and debating whether to head outside. She hadn't expected a knock. No one even knew she was here. Yet somehow, she could already guess the visitor. She turned the lock, pulled the knob, and there he was, the man from across the hall. Hello, he said. His voice was scratchy, and his fingers fidgeted. I was about to go to lunch, and I'm afraid I don't... That is, I'm here alone, and... Well, Elizabeth, said Elizabeth, extending a hand. And assuming you're buying, I'd love to join you.
Chester was an odd duck, but Elizabeth liked him all the same. The restaurant had a patio, and they found a table in the shade. Chester sat stiffly in his chair, hands in his lap, shoes crossed over each other. His wig was newly adjusted, and it could easily pass for a real head of hair. But all his other clothes looked ill-fitted, particularly his bow tie, which barely qualified as a knot. Elizabeth had met enough working men to know that he had trimmed the beard himself, to embarrassing effect. As for manners, he'd nearly sat down before offering to help Elizabeth with her chair. And yet, his suit was tailored, his footwear was expensive, he wore a crisp pork pie hat. He'd look downright dapper if he could settle into his vestments. Once their iced teas arrived, Chester stammered, So, um, Miss Crown, how come, that is, is this your first time? In Narragansett, I mean. It is, said Elizabeth, sipping from her glass and puckering at its sweetness. And so far, it's absolute bliss. Oh, good. And what brings you to town? To be honest, I've just returned from abroad. Oh, Chester shifted in his seat. How long were you away? Elizabeth grinned. Seven years. Seven years? Give or take. Where, where were you? All around, said Elizabeth. Quite literally, around the globe. I took a steamer out of Boston at the end of 1912, spent the winter in England, a month in Spain, from there across Europe, down to Africa, over to India, Indochina, China, Japan, Australia, and in the past year I took cargo ships from Alaska through the Panama Canal, and finally up to here, she sniffed. Of all places, I show up in Rhode Island. If that isn't sneaking back into the country, I don't know what is. Were you alone? I had company, said Elizabeth. Friends, guides, but only in fits and starts. That's incredible. Chester looked away, wistful. I, I admire that so much, Miss Crown. I truly do. And what about you? Ever been here before? Oh, Chester blushed. Lots of times. Every summer since I was a... He closed his eyes fretfully. Ever since I was young. Are you from here? Uh, from across the bay, Newport. Newport, Elizabeth echoed. Of course, with all the mansions and whatnot. Chester's smile showed no good humor. Yes, all the mansions. Their lunches arrived. Slabs of whitefish, a handful of clams casino, heaps of coleslaw, and a pickle. One more thing, Elizabeth called out to the waiter. Could you whip me up a mint julep? Chester's eyes widened. He turned to the waiter and belted, Two, please. They ate and sipped. The air was perfect. Diners chatted and laughed all around them. Water glasses were filled and plates were brought and cleared. 
Chester lifted his drink with dainty fingers, taking tiny sips. At last, he dabbed his mouth and said, And how did you come to travel so much, Miss Crown? Are you a missionary? Elizabeth guffawed. Heavens no! I doubt there's a mission on this earth that would want the likes of me. What was it then? The spirit of adventure? Elizabeth set down her fork and leaned her head against a palm. That was part of it. But you could say it's also part of my profession. Which is? I'm... I'm an investigator. Elizabeth's heart throbbed. These words felt new. But why? She had said all this before. She had described her work to hundreds of people, most of them strangers. She had lied, too, inventing names, identities, backgrounds, to evade questions about her clandestine career. And yes, she could lie now. Why not? Who was Chester to her? But she was here now, in her own country. She wasn't just passing through. Soon, she would be standing on her parents' doorstep. She would sleep in her childhood bedroom. She would settle back into American life. And she would resume her work in Pittsburgh, the city that had raised her. Like a detective? Chester pressed. Something like that. Chester looked over his shoulder. He whispered, Are you here for... for work? No, I'm very much on vacation. But then she swigged her drink, bit her lip, and added, To be honest, I'm not sure why I'm here. I think I'm just not ready to go home yet. Chester nodded thoughtfully. I can understand that. And you, said Elizabeth, divorced or widowed? Chester sputtered. I- I'm sorry? Your finger, said Elizabeth. There's an impression where I assume you wore a ring, and you're vacationing alone, which I must say is a bit odd, given that you've come to Narragansett, right across the bay, every summer since you were a child, but the only companion you can find for lunch is a complete stranger. Chester's breath quickened. You really are a detective, aren't you? Don't give it a second thought, said Elizabeth, finishing her julep. I have no agenda here, just making conversation. I... Chester stared at his hands. I am so impressed with you, Elizabeth. May I call you Elizabeth? Of course. You've done things, you're doing things, that so few women could imagine doing. I doubt I've met a woman, ever, who would dare travel the world as you have. It's... It's an inspiration. My word, Chester, you sound like a suffragette. I am, said Chester. Then he reddened again. I mean, I was, for a time. Mostly letter writing, holding salons, that kind of thing. But it's something I feel strongly about. Elizabeth wasn't sure how to respond to this. The compliment was golden, but Chester sounded so forlorn. They sat there awkwardly, wondering what to say. "'You asked about my ring,' continued Chester. 
he flexed his fingers and examined the empty groove. I'm separated. That's probably the best way to put it. We weren't happy together. It hasn't been very long, but it feels like a lifetime ago. And I needed some time. Someone suggested that I find someplace familiar, but also a little ways from home, so I took the ferry to Narragansett. Not far as the crow flies, but it feels like a world away. And I've needed that. Chester raised his empty glass at the waiter, who nodded. If you'll indulge another round, Elizabeth, I have a feeling you have many stories from your travels. Elizabeth smiled. I might have one or two. Well, I hope you'll tell me some. Elizabeth told stories. They finished off more libations, and the hours passed gracefully. When they decided they had overstayed their welcome, they left the restaurant and found another. Elizabeth described the streets of Barcelona, alpine villages, the minarets of Sarajevo, and the sooks of Egypt. She recounted her bout of Spanish flu in Ketchikan, her mix-up with some sailors in Panama City, and riding a dromedary across Saharan dunes. She tailored these anecdotes to her listener, leaving out anything truly uncanny. But Elizabeth was delighted to revisit all of these events, the years of accumulated memories. The sun sank low. The town was cast in mystical orange. Tipsy and warm, they strolled the streets of Narragansett. All around them, festive crowds gathered, wearing their finest outfits. The pubs were full of music. A pair of jugglers exchanged batons on the green. Children in knickerbockers scurried past, waving sparklers. Elizabeth and Chester meandered toward a massive stone structure. Two bulbous medieval towers connected by a robust stone arch. They looked to Elizabeth like a chateau straddling the highway as convertibles coasted through its open mouth. I think a king is missing his castle, said Elizabeth. Chester chuckled. That's the old casino. It used to be much bigger. They had such wonderful things in there. Tennis courts, a bowling alley. Used to? There was a fire in 1900. Half the building burned down. The towers are all that's left. But it was splendid back in the day. It had the most beautiful ballroom. I loved that ballroom. That's where I had my cotillion. Elizabeth tried to imagine Chester as an adolescent, dancing a waltz with some girl. It seemed so improbable. Chester was sweet and all, and he had an inscrutable charm. He was debatably handsome in the right light. But his manner was so sheepish, so passive, it was hard to picture him wooing any woman. He seemed to second-guess his every gesture. Even now, after hours of talking, Chester mostly listened. He showed no desire to impress Elizabeth with words or action. 
This proved a relief after months of rough company. But had Chester ever had designs on anyone? Was he even capable? At the pier, they watched the sun turn red and violet over the bay. Waves splashed lazily over piled rocks. Elizabeth felt the breeze, the same maritime air that had comforted her during long voyages. Couples walked quietly past. As always, the water seemed to extend forever, and Elizabeth swelled with a sense of possibility. When do you go back to uh, Pittsburgh? asked Chester. I'm not sure, said Elizabeth. She wanted to leave it at that. Her voice was hoarse from so much regaling, but she couldn't stop herself. The truth is, I've had some bad news. Oh? My parents have apparently separated. Chester snapped his head toward her. Oh, Elizabeth. It's been a long time coming, she said. They're very different people, my parents, and they've always confounded each other. Things must have come to a head. It seems my father is staying with colleagues in Philadelphia. They've set up an apartment for him. He's a scholar, you see, and he's won some sort of fellowship. And your mother will stay behind? No, that's the thing. She's taking a trip. That's the way she put it, anyway, but all of us know what that means. She's seeing family in California, probably for some time. Then they won't be there. No, and everyone else has left as well. Vicky, my sister, landed some kind of job in Paris, and my brother Charlie says he's going with mother, which leaves, well, nobody. The house is empty. Chester looked sullenly at the sea. Seven years. There's no one there to welcome you. Seems not. So there's no rush to get back. To be honest, here is as good a place as any. Elizabeth took a breath. I hate to feel sorry for myself, especially when you're in the same boat. Me? Aren't you separated? Aren't you here in Narragansett? because there's not much home to go back to? Chester traced the outline of his ear. You may be right about that. A long time passed, and then, all at once, Chester slid a hand into his jacket pocket and drew a shred of paper. It was ragged and gray. As Chester unfolded it, he revealed a clipping from a newspaper. It wasn't an article, as Elizabeth had expected, but a classified ad. Hit rock bottom? Nowhere to turn? Call Dr. Weiss. Don't wait. Start your new life today. Friend of yours? Elizabeth asked. He's someone I know. Well, I don't suppose he's a divorce attorney. What does he do? Chester squinted at the paper then placed it back in his pocket. He's been helping me with the transition. You see, it's not just the marriage. It's several things at once. Elizabeth gnawed at her lip. Chester, you don't have to tell me 
anything you don't want to. You hardly know me, really. But I saw you, just before we met, on the beach. Did you? Yes, I was sunbathing nearby, and there was some wind. It blew off your wig, and I saw your scars. Chester stepped away. His eyes searched the floorboards. He touched his hair, suddenly reminded that the fibers were borrowed. It's all between us, coaxed Elizabeth. But I must ask, are you all right? Is anything the matter? Chester looked up. A tear rolled down the bridge of his nose. He pressed both hands against his cheeks. Oh, Elizabeth, I want to tell you. I want to tell you more than anything, honestly. I've never been so lonely. Never in my life. Not even on the worst days. And you've been so kind. So very kind to share your afternoon with me. Elizabeth touched his shoulder. It's all right, Chester. But is there anything I can do? Any way to help? Chester sighed loudly. He looked down the long pier where the shapes of tourists darkened against the evening sky. Tomorrow, he said. Tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Please come to my room. I, I can't explain it, but you'll understand everything that's gone on. And please, Elizabeth, don't judge me. If you only knew, I've been through so much, and I just want it to be done with. Elizabeth squeezed his arm. I'll be there, Chester. I promise. You've been listening to The Quiet Man of Narragansett, Episode 1. The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown are written and performed by Robert Eisenberg. If you like what you're hearing, you might also enjoy The Mysterious Tongue of Dr. Vermilion and Other Stories, the first book in the Elizabeth Crown series. To learn more about the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net.